Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12, we're going to dive back into John's gospel again this morning as we continue to make our way through it. And this morning, we're only going to cover John 12, 1 through 8. So let's begin by reading this passage of Scripture together. And remember, as we read, this is God's inspired and inerrant word. Hear the word of the Lord. John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. What is the most important quality in a Christian? What should Christians value above all else in their Christian life? If God offered to grant you as a Christian one request for yourself, what would you ask for? Would it be some blessing in this life? A Christian spouse, perhaps. A house full of children. Would it be a virtue like humility or kindness or patience or courage? Would it be spiritual gifts like the ability to preach the word or to evangelize or to sing God's praises? Or would it be to accomplish something great for Christ, like bringing the gospel to an unreached people group in the world or starting a ministry that has a wide-ranging impact or planting a church or a network of churches? All of these things are, of course, good and rightly to be valued by Christians. I want to suggest that none of them are the most important thing in the Christian life. So what is? I think our text this morning that we've come to in John's Gospel really gets at the answer to that question. Now before diving in, I just want to pause here and I want to think about where we are in the flow of uh, this book, John's Gospel, for a moment. You know, some have called the first 12 chapters of John the book of signs uh, because they focus on the seven miracles of Jesus that are recorded in those chapters, miracles which were signs, which signified aspects of his identity and his mission as the Christ. The last nine chapters of the book are often called the book of glory because they zoom in and they focus on the events surrounding the death and resurrection of Christ. This event, which in John's gospel is often called the hour of his glory. Now this 12th chapter that we've come to this morning, it really provides a sort of hinge between these two major sections of the book. It brings the book of signs to a close and leads us into the book of glory. And it records a number of events, including the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on that final week. But its main theme is how people responded to the many signs of Jesus including the seven that are there in the first 11 chapters of the book. And John's point in this 12th chapter is that many 
saw the glory of Christ revealed in the signs and believed in him. But many others did not see his glory revealed in the signs because their hearts were hardened, even as the prophets had predicted. So this 12th chapter opens here in verses 1 through 8 with an account of one woman in Israel who had seen the glory of Christ more clearly than most and had responded to it more appropriately than most. And she is interestingly set in contrast to one of Jesus's 12 inner circle disciples who secretly remained unbelieving despite all that he had seen. So, with that said, let's take a closer look at these verses together now. For some time in John's gospel, going all the way back to chapter 5, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem had been trying to kill Jesus because they didn't believe that he was the Christ, the Son of God, and therefore they found many of his claims to be so as blasphemous. The last two times he had gone up to Jerusalem for one of the major feasts, they had tried to stone him on the spot. But somehow, either naturally or supernaturally, he had eluded their grasp and left. In the last chapter, chapter 11, he had not gone all the way to Jerusalem, but to a little village of Bethany, just two miles outside of the capital, where he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. This incredible miracle had actually been witnessed by crowds of Jews, many from Jerusalem and from the surrounding era, area, who had been provoked by this miracle to believe in him and to tell many others about him, both in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area. This fact had led the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem to respond by officially deciding that they needed to put Jesus to death because if they let him go on, the people might be so carried away by the miracles he was doing, that they would try to make him king and the Romans would come and destroy the entire nation. You remember the words of the high priest at the time, Caiaphas, that are there right at the end of chapter 11. Right before our text, he said, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Somehow Jesus heard about this decision and upon hearing about it, he had gone away to a remote town in the wilderness called Ephraim. And chapter 11 ended with the Jews who were already gathering in Jerusalem for the Passover, speculating about whether Jesus was going to go up to the city for the feast, even though the Jews were there waiting to apprehend him. And now chapter 12. And chapter 12 opens with these words in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, this story that is recorded here in the first eight chapters, or eight uh, verses of chapter 12, it's also included in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel. But whereas Matthew and Mark actually move the story into their accounts of Holy Week, and they do that for thematic reasons, John reveals here when it actually happened in verse 1. And he says that it occurred on Saturday, the day before Palm Sunday, the day before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, six days before the Passover. And we're told that also that he returned not first to Jerusalem, but to that little village two miles outside of Jerusalem, Bethany, where he had raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. Verse 2, it says this. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Now, 
both Matthew and Mark tell us that this dinner actually took place in the home of a man named Simon the leper. Now, if he was still a leper, they probably wouldn't be having this dinner in his house, which means he had been healed. And who do you think he was probably healed by? But Bethany was a small village, and most likely the families of Simon the leper and Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, were friends because verse 2 tells us that Lazarus was one of the guests at the meal who reclined at table while Martha, as she always was, was helping serve the meal. Now, the family of Simon the leper, the family of Lazarus and his two sisters, it appears that they were all disciples of Jesus. People who had not only observed his miraculous signs, but in these two cases, Simon and Lazarus, experienced his power firsthand. And they had come to believe that he was the Christ, the Son of God. So when Jesus came to Bethany, perhaps unexpected to them, it makes perfect sense that these two adoring families of disciples would host a feast in his honor. It should also be noted that they must have done this at considerable risk to themselves. Because remember, the Jewish ruling council, the, the Sanhedrin, that met just two miles away in Jerusalem, had officially decided to put Jesus to death. And in verse 57 of chapter 11, leading up to these two verses, first verses of chapter 12, it says, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. What do they do? They host a feast for him. And they must have done so in direct violation of those orders handed down from the ruling council and therefore were risking severe reprisal from the authorities if discovered. It was an act of courage for Jesus' friends in Bethany to honor him with a feast when the authorities just two miles away in Jerusalem, we're seeking to arrest him as a dangerous criminal. By the way, we see in this a reminder, don't we, of the type of courage that Jesus' disciples would need to have from then on, in every generation, including our own. When people in the society around us, including the authorities, denounce Jesus and his teaching as dangerous and prohibit people from associating with him, it will take courage for us as his disciples to identify with and follow him without apology. But it was not the feast itself, but rather what happened at this feast that made this story so significant, it was included in three of the four Gospels. The primary event is recorded there in verse 3. It says, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. The accounts of this that already existed before John's gospel was written, the accounts in Matthew and Mark, they actually don't identify who the woman was who did this. But John tells us who she was. And it adds significant pop to the story, doesn't it? Because the woman who anointed Jesus turns out to be Mary, the sister of Martha, whose brother Lazarus had just been raised by Jesus from the dead a short time earlier. Now, we already know from the portraits of Mary that are given to this point in the New Testament that she was a woman who thought about and felt things deeply and that she had been profoundly affected and captured by Jesus. So you remember that picture in Luke chapter 10 where there's another dinner at 
Lazarus and Mary and Martha's house and Martha is busy with all the preparations and she expects her sister to help her. And what is Mary doing? Sitting, captivated at Jesus's feet, listening to him. Or in the last chapter, John chapter 11, we saw that her grief over her brother Lazarus's death and her consternation that Jesus had not been there to save him seemed to exceed in depth that of her sister, Martha. And when Jesus finally did arrive in Bethany, after her brother's death, she'd fallen at his feet. She was weeping and she poured out the agony of her soul to him. She said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So you can only imagine how profoundly Mary's soul must have been affected when she saw Jesus shortly after that call her brother out of the tomb. Mary, who seems to have always felt things so deeply, whose devotion to Jesus had been so passionate, must have been overwhelmed with awe and adoration at the wisdom and the power and the compassion that Jesus had displayed in that miracle. Whatever her heart had felt toward him before, must have increased many times over as she embraced her brother with trembling hands and began to unwrap the grave clothes from his now warm body after it had been laying cold and dead in a tomb for four days. And you can imagine perhaps she looked back to Jesus and saw that he was smiling at her with joy. She must have seen him with whole new eyes. She'd already believed that he was the Christ, that he was the Son of God. But like everyone else, Mary was still learning to appreciate what that really meant. And this event had given her an experiential knowledge of Jesus that few others had had. And given her temperament, it must have cultivated within her soul an extravagant love and devotion to him. I say that because of what we see described in verse 3. It's clearly an expression of a heart filled with such things. Some of the details here. Nard was a fragrant oil. It was used as a perfume, a luxury item. And this was pure nard. So you can imagine in that day, you'd have you know people selling nard on the street for a lot less, but it had been diluted down, you know, mixed with impurities. But this was pure nard. Nard was apparently imported from India. So you can imagine it was extremely expensive to have in that part of the world. And Mary had a whole pound of it. The other gospels tell us it was in a, an alabaster jar. Verse 5, Judas estimated its value at 300 denarii. So a denarii was a day's wage for an average worker in Israel. 300 denarii, if you take off all the Sabbaths, was basically one year's wage for an average worker. It was you know, the equivalent of many tens of thousands of dollars in our currency. So either Mary's family was very wealthy or this was a particularly precious item, a, a family heirloom passed down through the generations. In any case, Mary chose it precisely because of how precious it was. The accounts in Matthew and Mark, they tell us that when she came up to Jesus, she broke the alabaster jar containing this perfume and she poured it out on his head. John adds that she also, quote, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. One commentator explains the scene here. He says people at special feasts would lie with their heads near a low table and their feet pointing away from it behind them. And they would rest on one elbow and eat with the other hand. This is what John meant when he said that Lazarus and others were reclining with Jesus at the table. Verse 2. 
So Mary must have approached Jesus as he was in this kind of position and poured out this precious contents of the bottle on his head and then also on his feet who were stretched out behind him. And the reason John focuses in upon the fact that Mary poured out this expensive ointment on his feet was because this was an act of lowly service. In fact, I think the intensity of her devotion to Jesus is further highlighted by the fact that it says that she wiped his feet with her hair. This would mean she would have unbound her hair to do this, which women never did in public in that time. But she didn't care. She bestowed upon Jesus the most extravagant gift that she could in the most extravagant way that she could in order to express this overflowing, extravagant reverence of and love for and devotion to him that was filling her heart. Jesus tells us at the end, or John tells us at the end of verse 3, that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, which I think on the one hand tells you that John was there. He remembers what it was like. But it also, I think, speaks to the impact of the event. Everyone in the room became aware of what was happening. When they saw it, it must have been filled with the sense of shock and wonder, awe at what they were seeing. But wonder wasn't the only emotion that people in the room felt when they saw Mary pour out this entire bottle of extremely costly perfume on Jesus' head and feet because Mark's account says this. It says, there were some, plural, who reacted with indignation, anger. Matthew's account puts it this way. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, angry. In other words, some of Jesus' disciples were outraged when they saw what Mary did. Mark's account sums up the reason for their outrage. It says, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? In other words, they thought Mary's anointing Jesus as an expression of her lavish devotion was not a good use of such a valuable item. It should have been saved, they thought, for for something more important. It was a telling comment, wasn't it? It showed how deficient the disciples' knowledge of Jesus still was at this point. It revealed how little they still grasped of his true glory as the Christ, the Son of God. But John's account does something that Matthew and Mark's account chose not to do. John singled out one of the disciples who was particularly outraged at Mary's act and recalled the words that he actually spoke in the moment to protest it. So look at verses 4 and 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. So Judas Iscariot was one of the disciples who was angered when he saw Mary pour out an entire bottle of pure nard on Jesus' head and his feet. He was angry because it seemed to him like pouring tens of thousands of dollars right down the drain. In this case, this sentiment reflected not just deficient faith like the other disciples, but a lack of faith altogether. He was a hypocrite. He was merely pretending to believe in Jesus when he had actually lost faith in him altogether. By this time, Judas, it seems, 
had come to consider Jesus a fraud. And he was on the verge of betraying him into the hands of the Jewish leaders. Indeed, it's interesting that John takes us into Judas's heart and he reveals that Judas's love of money contributed to his outrage at Mary's act. As he had no doubt been come used to doing by this point, he concealed his true motives by feigning a concern for the poor. When John tells us that in reality, he had been using his stewardship of the group's money bag to steal out of it for himself. And thus, when he saw the precious contents of this jar poured out by Mary on Jesus' head, he saw the loss of an opportunity to steal much larger sums of money for himself. By the way, the same greed which would contribute to his decision, would also contribute to his decision to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver on Thursday of the following week. What a sober cause this is for us to just pause for a moment and reflect upon the grave danger that the love of money poses to our souls. You know, it was for a very good reason that Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. He could have been talking about Judas, but he wasn't only talking about Judas. He's warning all of us. Indeed, as Paul would put it in Colossians 3.5, he said, greed is idolatry. It erects money and all that it buys for us as a rival to Christ in our souls. And if in truth your heart is in love with money for all that it gets you in this life, it can easily lead you to compromise your faith and to disobey Christ in order to keep it or to get it. This is what Jesus warned his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So the love of money is one of those things that we have to put to death by the power of the Spirit when we see it in our souls. One way to do that is to choose to give regularly, sacrificially, out of your worldly wealth to causes that serve and honor our Lord Jesus Christ. The passage ends by telling us how Jesus responded to the indignation of some of his disciples, especially Judas, in verses 7 through 8. And there we read, first, Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, Judas's verbal response to Mary's act must have stung her. And Mark says that the larger group of disciples scolded her. She definitely felt a wave of disapproval from this group of men at the feast over what she'd done. And while she no doubt did not in any way regret what she had done, she must have at the same time felt humiliated at being publicly shamed in this way. But Jesus quickly intervened in her behalf and he said, leave her alone. And he did that not just to spare her, but to commend her. He saw in Mary's act what the disciples, and especially Judas, had not seen. He recognized that what she had done to him was eminently good and right. In fact, Matthew's account records him as saying, for she has done a beautiful 
a good, a fitting thing to me. Then he went on to explain. The phrase, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. That's a difficult phrase to interpret, the language of keeping it and and what he means there. Some think that Jesus was telling them to let her keep the rest of the nard to use at his upcoming burial. I think that's unlikely because it seems that she poured the whole thing out uh, according to the three accounts of this event. Another interpretation is that Jesus was explaining to his disciples that Mary had kept this perfume precisely for this occasion when she would anoint him for his upcoming burial. Another interpretation is that he was telling them to let her keep or observe this anointing as a way of memorializing his upcoming burial. Something like interpretation two or three is most likely, and it fits Matthew and Mark's explanation where they quote Jesus as saying, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. But that leads to another question, doesn't it? Is Jesus saying that Mary actually knew she was anointing Jesus' body for burial or not? Well, after thinking about it, I, I think that Probably not. I think Carson gets it right when he explains it this way. He says, There is no clear evidence that Mary or anyone else understood before the cross that Jesus had to die. She meant this to be an act of costly, humble devotion. But, like Caiaphas, she signaled more than she knew. I think that's right. In God's providence, in fact, Mary's act ended up prefiguring the acts of Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, who anointed Jesus' body with even larger amounts of costly perfume before laying it in the tomb. Just six days later, on Good Friday, the evening of his death. Then Jesus made this very striking statement there in verse 8. He said, For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, the meaning of that statement is quite straightforward. (laughs) Judas had protested that helping the poor would have been a better use of this expensive ointment than anointing Jesus with it. But Jesus said, no, the exact opposite is true. Anointing his body as Mary had done was a better use of the perfume than selling it to help the poor. Why? Well, first, he said, because there would always be opportunities to help the poor, but the opportunity to anoint his body was now or never. He was soon to be gone. But implicit in that reasoning is the more fundamental principle that Honoring Jesus was more important than helping the poor. Now, don't get me wrong. To be clear, we can honor Jesus by helping the poor. But if you were to take helping the poor and honoring Jesus and weigh the acts against each other, there's no comparison. Expressing extravagant love and devotion to Jesus as Mary had done in that moment was infinitely more significant than selling the money and giving it to the poor. And this is something that Judas flatly did not believe and that the disciples clearly had not yet grasped. Of course, we also should pause there and recognize that this statement of Jesus is incredibly audacious. It's so audacious that it really forces us once again to decide about who he really is. As one commentator put it, were a mere mortal to claim such priority, he would be very ill or unspeakably arrogant. 
unless we're to prepared to say that Jesus was a, a raving lunatic to say such a thing or, or a wicked deceiver, we're forced to reckon with the possibility that perhaps he isn't a mere mortal at all. But as he claimed, as John tells us in this book, the divine Son of God, who existed for all eternity and entered into the world as a man a little over 2,000 years ago. And if he is, well, then Mary's act of devotion makes perfect sense. Indeed, Mary's act revealed that she had come to believe about Jesus what the other disciples had still not yet fully grasped. She had come to see his glory in a way that they had not yet done. She had recognized that Jesus as the promised Messiah and the eternal divine Son of God, now come in the flesh, was so perfectly wonderful in his person and in his works that he was worthy of the highest love and devotion of her heart. And this is why she looked around her house, took the most precious thing she owned, and used it to anoint his body that night. That's why she lowered herself down to wipe it into his feet with her hair like a lowly slave. It was her way of trying to express to him that he held the place of highest honor in her heart and she loved him more than anything else in her life. Unbeknownst to her, as Jesus makes clear, in a twist of divine providence, her act of devotion had also ended up foretelling the upcoming event in which Jesus' glory would be most fully revealed and for which his people would owe him their highest devotion. His death on the cross as the ultimate Passover lamb to pay for their sins and to save them from the judgment of God. This is why, according to Mark's account of this event, Jesus said of Mary's act, she has done a beautiful thing to me She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And in fact, that has happened. That her act of extravagant devotion, which was more significant than she knew, which the disciples scorned as wasteful, has ended up being commemorated in the New Testament and read by Christians in every generation since. It has become, in fact, a model for the kind of love and devotion to Jesus which every Christian in every age ought to aspire to. Over against, by the way, the kind of religious hypocrisy reflected in Judas's rebuke. So, let's return to the question I posed at the beginning. What is the most important quality in a Christian? What should Christians value above everything else in their Christian life? If God were to grant you one request for yourself, what would you ask for? Well, the answer, I think, is revealed in this text. The most important quality in a Christian is what Mary showed in her act of anointing Jesus. Namely, sincere and deep love for and devotion to the Lord Jesus. This is what we as Christians ought to value above all else in our Christian life. If God offered to give us one request for ourselves, we should say with that old hymn, More love, O Lord, to thee. More love to thee. How do we get it? Well, as Paul indicated in Galatians 5.22, love is a fruit of the Spirit. So first and foremost, we have to earnestly pray, continually pray, Lord, 
please fill our hearts with this love. And when we do that, we can be confident that he loves to answer that prayer because the epitome of his will for us is that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that applies to Jesus as well now too. But how does the Spirit give us more love for Jesus? Well, in 1 John 4.19 it says that we love because he first loved us. One of the implications of that, I think, is that the way that the Spirit creates love for Christ in our hearts is by revealing to us God's love for us in Christ. So if we want to have more love for Christ, we must pray that God would give to us greater knowledge of his love for us in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think of Paul's wonderful prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. He says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. To grasp more and more of the love of Christ for us by the Spirit. That's how the Spirit gives us more love for him in return. But how does the Spirit give us greater knowledge of God's love for us in Christ? How does he do that? Well, there are many things to say here, but I think the principal way has to be that he does this. He gives us greater knowledge of his love for us in Christ by opening the eyes of our heart by the Spirit to understand, to grasp, to appreciate the gospel of Christ crucified for us more and more deeply. You know, we read this in 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, is, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love for us has been manifested to us in that gospel of God sending his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Or take Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Paul says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then he tells us where this love of God for us is manifest. And he explains in verses 6 through 8, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, it's precisely when the Spirit of God reveals God's love to our hearts in the sacrificial death of Christ, that our hearts are inflamed with love for him in return. And we are, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, constrained, controlled by that love for Christ to serve him with this kind of extravagant devotion that we see reflected in what Mary did in our text. But what does the Holy Spirit use to reveal to us this gospel where we see God's love for us display? Well, it's the scriptures, of course. It's there that the gospel of Jesus Christ has been preserved so that sinners like us might have access to it in every generation. And whenever he is pleased to do it, the Holy Spirit grabs a hold of people's hearts and opens their minds to believe that gospel, to be saved through it. And then he inflames 
the hearts of Christians who reflect upon that gospel to grow deeper and deeper in their understanding and appreciation of it. So, if you're not a Christian here, for some reason this morning, hear the gospel revealed in Scripture. You have sinned. You have fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but you can be forgiven and saved from God's judgment through the sacrificial death of his son, Jesus Christ, if you'll repent and believe in him. And believer, let's read the scripture to understand the person and work of our Savior and King Jesus better and better. Let's pray that we might grow in our love and devotion to him in response. Let's eagerly pray and strive to have the kind of lavish devotion to Jesus in our hearts that we see expressed in Mary's heart in this text. This is the most important quality in our life as a Christian. But, Let's also be sobered by the contrasting example of Judas. You know, it's interesting. By all accounts, he seems to have been a model disciple of Jesus. You know, his outward life was apparently so convincing that his disciples entrusted him with the money bag. When you read those accounts of the Last Supper, you see it. It's as if the disciples just can't Get it, that Jesus is, that Judas is the one who would betray him. They can't believe it. He seems to have been the last person they would have suspected to betray Jesus. But it was all a show. His outward facade of following Jesus, it concealed inwardly a heart of unbelief. It turned out that Judas loved money more than Jesus. Because he stole from Jesus during his life and he betrayed him in the end for 30 pieces of silver. Of course, Jesus always knew that Judas was false. John points that out on many occasions in this gospel, but Judas' fellow disciples didn't. And this should be a warning to all of us in this room. It is sincere love for Christ in the heart, which flows out of true faith in the gospel, given to us by the Spirit. That's what matters before God. An outward facade of morality and religion, it means nothing, nothing. Indeed, if that conceals a heart of unbelief, it makes you a hypocrite. It only compounds your guilt that you're performing it outwardly, as if God doesn't see right into your heart. And while other people may not see the truth about your heart, Jesus sees it. So, anyone here this morning who knows themselves to be living this way, the message to you this morning is, repent. You know, put off the facade, the veneer of Christianity. Start dealing honestly with your heart. If you don't really believe, stop pretending that you do. Whether to please a loved one or a friend. Or to get in with a girl or a boy. To please your parents. Start Seeking the truth honestly about Jesus with sincerity. If you're hiding sin, bring it out into the open. Confess it to God. It's not too late. Cry out to him for forgiveness. Earnestly begin seeking Christ. You know what that looks like? It looks like spending time in the word of God. Spending time praying. Not just when people see you doing it, but because you honestly want to know the truth. If you're trying to follow him and to serve the things of this world too, stop. Count the cost. 
Choose this day who you will serve. God or the things of this world? Because Christ doesn't tolerate any rivals for the hearts of his people. He wants a faithful bride. It's Mary, in other words, not Judas, that turns out to be the model for us. And the question it faces us with is, who will we follow? Brothers and sisters, there are many good things that we can rightly value as Christians. But Mary shows us what is best. We should seek above all things in this life a deep reverence for, love of, devotion to Jesus Christ in our hearts. If we have that, and we have nothing else in this world, we will be the most happy and holy people on earth. May the refrain of the old hymn by Emily Prentice be the melody of our hearts. Once earthly joy I craved, sought peace and rest. Now thee alone I seek, give what is best. This all my prayer shall be, more love, O Christ, to thee, more love to thee, more love to thee. Let's pray. Our Father, we are bowed down in our hearts before this wonderful text of Scripture where we are reminded of the glory of Christ even as we sung of it with such wonderful words in those last two songs before the sermon. Lord, we know that we were unworthy, indeed hell-deserving sinners, defiled and wicked, but you chose to set your love upon us. You sent the person of your beloved son and did what you stayed the hand of Abraham from doing. You offered up your one and only son as a sin-bearing substitute, and he himself willingly laid down his life to pay the debt that we owed for our sin, to purchase our full redemption, and to make us your own children, beloved of you, to give us as a bride to your son. Lord, what love you have bestowed on us. Don't let our hearts be cold, worldly, Fill us with appropriate reverence for our King, love for Him, devotion to Him, that we might not think twice of taking the most precious thing that we own in this life and pouring it out on His feet. <laughs> 